hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor of Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our sermon podcast, we're going to be finishing up our series called Above All, where we've been talking about some of the different names for God that we find in the Bible. And in the Bible, names reveal something about a person's nature or character. And that's true when it comes to the names for God that we find in the Bible. The names of God we find in the Bible tell us that our God is great and powerful and that there is no one like our God. But there's one name for God that we find in the Bible that reveals as much about how God sees us as it does about who God is. And that's the name that we're going to be talking about in this week's episode. It's the most common name that Jesus used when he speaks about God. That's the name Father. So let's dive into this episode's sermon and see what the name Father can teach us about who God is and about how God sees us. So over the last few weeks here at Melbourne Heights, we've been working our way through a series of sermons where we've been exploring what the Apostle Paul refers to as the name above all names in Philippians 2 verse 9. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about some of the different names for God that we find inside of the Bible. And we've been talking about some of the different names for God that we find inside of the Bible because when God reveals his name, God is revealing who he is. When God reveals his name to us, God is revealing who he is to us. So we've been taking a look at some of these different names for God to see what they can teach us about who God is. So we started this series a few weeks ago by taking a closer look at the most commonly used name for God that we find in the entire Bible. His name is used more than 6,500 times, and it's the name Yahweh. And what does the name Yahweh reveal to us about who God is? Well, typically we translate this name into English as meaning I am. But we saw that a better understanding of the name Yahweh may just be that it means I am what I have done. And that reveals to us that God is a God that we cannot know until we have experienced what God has done for ourselves. And then two weeks ago, during our time together, we took a closer look at the very first name for God that we find in the Bible. This is the first introduction, the first impression of God that we get, and it happens in the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis 1, verse 1, God introduces us to himself as Elohim. And what does Elohim reveal to us about who God is? Well, the name Elohim tells us that God has no competition, that God is the God above all. And then last week, we spent our time together taking a look at the way that God introduces himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that he is El Shaddai. And what does the name El Shaddai reveal to us about who God is? Well, it reveals to us that God is a great, God is a powerful God, that God can make a way where there is no way. Because that's exactly what God does for Abraham and Abraham's wife, Sarah, in Genesis 17. God makes a way for Abraham and Sarah to have a baby, even though Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. And that brings us to today. And today we're going to be finishing up this series called Above All. And that means that there's still one more name of God that I want us to take a closer look at during the series. And the name that I want us to take a closer look at today isn't just another way that God introduces himself to one of the people that we meet inside of the Bible. Now, the name that I want us to take a closer look at today is the name that is most commonly used by Jesus when he is referring to God. So what is that name? What is the most common way that Jesus refers to God inside of the Bible? Well, I'll give you a couple of hints here. 
Jesus refers to God using this name 150 times inside of the Bible. The very first time that Jesus refers to God using this name is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. The last time that Jesus refers to God this way is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 22. But the place that we're probably the most familiar with, Jesus referring to God by this name, is when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Now remember how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, right? Jesus begins that prayer with the words, Our Father. So the name that we're going to be taking a closer look at today is the name Father. This is the most common name, the most common way that Jesus refers to God inside the Bible. But I told you just a second ago, when we were starting into the sermon, part of the reason why we're looking at these names of God is because when God reveals a name to us, it reveals who God is to us. So what does the name Father reveal to us about who God is? Well, that question may not be quite as easy to answer as you might think. And it may not be quite as easy to answer as you might think, because the Bible actually has a lot to say about fathers. Now, some of what the Bible has to say about fathers is really common to us. It's familiar to us. Like in the Ten Commandments, when the Bible teaches us to honor your father and your mother. And some of those passages, we see the, the word father used a lot in places like genealogies in the Bible, where we learn about who begat who. But in all, the word father is used more than a thousand times inside of the Bible. More than a thousand times. The word father appears in 54 out of the 66 books that make up our Bible. So when we're trying to figure out what the word father can reveal to us about who God is, there's a lot of material that we can choose from. So as I started digging deeper into this, and I started looking at some of the different passages that refer to Father inside of the Bible, there was really just one passage that really stood out to me as exemplifying what it means for God to be our Father. And this is a passage that's actually going to be pretty familiar to just about all of us. We find this particular passage in Luke chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible close by or an app on your phone, I'd encourage you to grab it. Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 15. And as you're finding it, let me just tell you a little bit more about the book of Luke. Luke is one of the first four books that we find inside of the New Testament. And we refer to the first four books of the New Testament as the Gospels. So the first four books, you've got Matthew, Mark, then there's Luke, and then there's John. And we call these Gospels. And we call them Gospels because the word Gospel means good news. And these four books, they tell us the good news of who Jesus is. So these four books are basically biographies of Jesus. So when you're reading the book of Luke, what that means is you're going to be able to read about Jesus' birth, and you'll be able to read about his baptism. You'll be able to read about Jesus' ministry. You'll be able to read about the ministry and the miracles that Jesus performed. You're going to be able to read about Jesus' crucifixion, and you can read about his resurrection. But in Luke 15, we're going to be looking at part of a message that Jesus teaches. And if there's one thing that you should know about the way that Jesus likes to teach is that Jesus loves to tell stories as he's teaching. And he really has a habit of using these short little stories that have an impactful and important emphasis inside of them. And we call these short little stories that have this impact inside of them parables. So in Luke 15, we're going to find what's probably one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever teaches. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 15 together. I want us to start reading in verse 11. Here's what Luke writes. He says, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, 
Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterwards, a younger son gathered everything together, and he took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? But I'm here starving to death. So I'll get up. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting, because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if you've spent much time around church at all over the years, you probably know that we usually refer to this story that we just read as the parable of the prodigal son. And we refer to this as the parable of the prodigal son for a good reason. The word prodigal actually means to be wastefully or recklessly extravagant. And that's exactly what the son does in the story. He is wastefully and recklessly extravagant. He takes everything that he gets from his father and he wastes no time squandering it all away. But there is a problem with referring to this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. And that problem actually pops up at the very beginning of the story that we just read. So I want to go back and I want to look at just the very beginning of this story one more time to show you what the problem is with calling this the parable of the prodigal son. So let's go back. Let's take a look at Luke 15, verse 11, one more time. So here's what it says. Jesus said... A certain man had two sons. A certain man had two sons. This is the very beginning of the parable that we just read. And that very beginning, it tells us who the focus of this story is actually on. In this story, it's not focused on that prodigal son. No, the story is focused on that certain man who had two sons. The story, the focus of the story, is the father. And why is the focus of this story the father? Well, it's because this story is an allegory. It's a symbolic story that Jesus tells to teach us about who God is and how God views all of us. And if we actually go back a little bit earlier on, if we go back not just to the beginning of this story in Luke 15, but all the way to the beginning of Luke 15 as a whole, we'll see that's why Jesus was telling this story to begin with. He wanted to teach people about who God is. So if we go all the way back to Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, we're told that all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and the legal experts, they were grumbling and they were saying, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. 
So those couple of verses that we just read, what they're telling us is that there are these religious leaders in Jesus' time who simply cannot begin to understand why Jesus hangs out and associates with people that these religious leaders would never dare spend time with. That's because in these religious leaders' minds, there were few people lower in the social hierarchy of their day than sinners and tax collectors. So they can't understand why Jesus would hang out with sinners and tax collectors. So Jesus tells them the parable that we just read to show them who God really is, the way God really feels about us all. And Jesus starts out by telling them a story about the most despicable person that these religious leaders could have possibly imagined. He tells them a story about a son who goes to his father, demanding his share of his father's estate while his dad is still alive. Now, to our ears today, that doesn't exactly paint a flattering picture of this son. I mean, who wants to be the kid that goes and demands a share of their parents' estate while their parent is still living? But we could actually imagine this scene playing out in our world, right? I mean, it's not hard to imagine tuning into an episode of Judge Judy or whatever she calls her show these days and seeing a son coming on and suing his dad to get his share of his dad's estate. But because we can picture this story actually happening in our culture, our world today, it keeps us from realizing just how shocking this whole thing is. Kenneth Bailey, who was the founder of the Institute for Middle Eastern New Testament Studies, explains to us just how shocking this scene is to us when he writes this. Bailey says, For over 15 years I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father's still living. The answer was all, has always been emphatically the same. The conversation goes like this. Has anybody ever made such a request in the village that you live in? Never. Could anyone ever make that kind of request? It's impossible. If anyone ever did, then what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. But why? Because this request means that he wants his father to die. So what Bailey is telling us here is that when this son goes to his father, demanding his share of his father's estate while his dad is still living, he's essentially looking his dad right in the eyes and telling him, I can't wait for you to die. And at this point in the story, after Jesus talks about the son going and demanding his share of his father's inheritance while his dad was still living, the religious leaders would have expected the father to do the same thing that all the people that Kenneth Bailey talked to. They would have expected the father to lash out, to beat his son, because that's exactly what the religious leaders would have done. But instead of telling them what they expect to hear, Jesus gives them a glimpse of who God is and how God sees all of us. Jesus tells them that the Father gave the Son everything that the Son asked for. Now, whether you realize it or not, God does the exact same thing for all of us. The God who created 
all of us, the God who breathed life into us, the God who gives us our very purpose for living, also gives us the freedom to walk away from him. And why does God give us the freedom to walk away from him? It's because God knows that relationships can't be forced. God knows that love cannot be coerced. So God gives us the freedom to walk away from him because God wants us to choose to love him. God wants us to choose to love him. But we all stray from what God wants in our lives. We all do things that separate us from God. In more churchy terms, we talk about the fact that we are all sinners. And that's definitely the case for the, store, for the son inside of this story. The son doesn't do what his father wants him to do. This, the son demands his share of the inheritance, and when he gets it, he goes out and he squanders it all away in no time. And we do the exact same thing. We take the gifts that God has given us, and we squander them away. You know, sometimes we use the gifts that God has given us simply so that we can try to get ahead at work. And when we do that, when we get ahead at work, we look around and we realize that we still feel empty inside. Or we take the gifts that God has given us so that we can try to make more money, so that we can afford to buy some of life's finer things. But when we go out and we spend some of that money buying the latest gadgets and gizmos, or when we go out and we pay for a fancy vacation or a luxury car, thinking that those things are going to make us happy, we realize just how fleeting that happiness is. Or we take the gifts that God has given us so that we can make friends and influence people, thinking that if we do that, then we will have people who actually love us. But in the end, we end up feeling like nobody knows us at all. We spend our whole lives chasing after all of these things, only to realize that in the end, they leave us feeling empty. They leave us feeling alone. And make us realize that we're not where we should be, that our life's not what it should be. And it's at this point in the story that the son comes to an important realization. It's at this point in the story that the son looks around and he realizes that his life isn't what it should be or what it could be. So he makes a decision. He decides that he is going to go back to his father. But he knows that he can't just go back to his father. Because of the way that he behaved, he knows that he should no longer be treated as a, father, as a son by his father. So the prodigal son comes up with a plan. He decides that he is going to go back to his dad on his hands and on his knees, and he is going to beg his father to allow him to be a slave in his father's household. But what happens next? shows us exactly what it means for God to be our Father. What happens next in the story shows us how God views every single one of us. So as we look back at Luke 15, I want us to show you one more time what Jesus says. Luke 15, I want to pick up in verse 20. Here's what Jesus says. Because while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him. He hugged him. He kissed him. 
And then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We have to celebrate with feasting because the son of mine was dead and he has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to celebrate. So this father, who had been betrayed, this father who had been left behind, this father who had spent his life raising this son, providing for this son, protecting this son, only to have his son turn his back on him and walk away, this father is waiting to welcome his son home. Because to that father, it didn't matter what his son had done. To that father, it didn't didn't matter where his son had gone. The only thing that mattered was that he was still the father's son. Same thing is true for us. It's the same way that God sees us. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've gone. You are still a child of God. It's true. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've gone. You are still a child of God. This is the way that Henry Nowen, who is a renowned scholar as well as a priest, put it in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Nowen writes, It might sound strange, but God wants to find me as much as, if not more than, I want to find God. Yes, God needs me as much as I need God. God is not the patriarch who stays home, who doesn't move and expects his children to come to him, apologizing for their abhorrent behavior, begging for forgiveness, and promising to do better. To the contrary, God leaves the house ignoring his dignity by running toward them, pays no heed to apologies and promises of change, but brings them to his table richly prepared for them. What Henry Nowen says is absolutely true. As strange as it may be for us to think about, but when we have wandered away from God, God wants to find us every bit as much, if not more, than we want to find God. God needs us as much as we need God. And why is that? Because we're God's children. And if you're a parent, you get this. If you're a parent and your kid gets lost... You want to find your child every bit as much as your child wants to be found. And as a parent, you need your children in your life at least as much as your kids need you in their lives. This is who God is. So over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about what the different names for God reveal to us about who God is. But today I want you to know, I want you to know, what being able to call God our Father reveals to us about who you are. Being able to call God your Father reveals that you are a child of God. You are a child of God. So yes, God is the God above all gods. God is able to make a way where there is no way. God is greater than any of us can possibly begin to imagine. 
But God is also your Father. And what that means is that God loves you more than you can ever begin to imagine. That's who God is. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this word of prayer, I'm just in awe of the fact that you allow us to call you Father. God, you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You are the God that is above all gods. You are greater than we can begin to imagine. You can do things that none of us could possibly dream of doing. You make a way where there is no way. But you call us your children. You're our Father. You're a great God but you're also a God who loves every single one of us more than we can begin to imagine. So God, I know right now that there are people who can hear my voice who feel like they have wandered a long way from you. They feel like they've lived a life like that prodigal son lived. They feel like there's no way that you would ever welcome them back home. But God, show them how you really feel. Show them the love that you have for them. Show them the love that you have for us all. That no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, you are always waiting with open arms to welcome us back. Because you're our Father, and we are your children. Let us feel the love you have for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has reminded you that no matter what you have done in your life, no matter where you have gone, that you are still a child of God, that God loves you more than you can begin to imagine. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode, but I hope that you come back and join us when our next episode drops. Now, we're going to be taking a couple of weeks off over the next few weeks, but we'll be coming back together soon as we start into a new series called Ghost Stories. So if you subscribe to our podcast, that next episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app, or you can come and worship with us live on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our church website at mhbclouisville.com slash live. We'd love to have you come and join us. But until next time, I hope that you have a great week. I'll be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another Sermon Podcast.